Acts chapter 17. So uh, Adam finished last week at verse 15, so I'm going to read from verses 16 to the end of the chapter, and then we'll get into it. Acts 17, starting in verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, Oh, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And when they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you proclaim without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear of you, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some joined him and believed. Among among them Dionysius, however you say his name, the Aragopite, and a woman named Damiris, and others among them. And Father, again we ask that you would uh, just bless our time in your word. So God doesn't want us to hide. It's tempting to hide. It's tempting to feel like, you know, um, I just want to kind of hang out with some Christians. They're going to make me, encourage me in my faith and not sort of go outside my comfort zone. But we pick it up in, in Acts 17 after Paul's been in uh, uh, Thessalonia. He's been in Berea. Uh, he's been preaching the gospel. And he leaves Silas and Timothy there in Thessalonica. And he goes to Athens, and he's kind of waiting for them to get to Athens. And so you see Paul's kind of just going to pass through. It was like he hadn't necessarily intended to do kind of any ministry there, just kind of kind of pass through Athens. 
But Luke makes it clear to us that while he's in Athens, his spirit is provoked. Something's really bugging him. It's like a sharp stick to the side. This isn't right. What he sees bothers him about what's going on in the city because that whole city was given over to idols. Now, have any of you guys been to Athens here? Any of you guys? A few of you. Okay, I haven't. I haven't been. Uh, I hear it's phenomenal. I hear it's beautiful. One of the things that we know about Athens in the first century was that it said of, uh, some, some had said of Athens that it was easier to find a god than it was to find a man in Athens in that day. Because everywhere you looked, every household had some sort of statue or idol that they bowed down to. Whether it was just an ancestor that they really reverenced or a god that they worshipped, they were everywhere. And this was a whole city that was given over to this. It was, a, it was known as a uh, sort of a, uh, a university city, like Alexandria in Egypt or, um, or other places. It was a place where uh, people were proud of their intellectual prowess and, and, and they were investigators of truth. And Paul's there and what he sees is a bunch of people who believe in false gods. And he's bothered by this. He's really bugged by this. And so what does he do? He, he goes and he reasons in the synagogue. Now, what I want to talk to you guys about tonight really is this idea of the fact that God wants us, <coughs> God wants us to take him, his message, into this world. He, he wants us to say, okay, we, we're supposed to take our God, the God of Scripture, the God who's revealed himself through Jesus, into this world. We're not supposed to hide from this world, nor are we supposed to bring to this world a message of a God that's different than the God of the Bible, but our God into this world is what we're supposed to do. So basically, I'm going to give you three main things from this text that we can learn about that. And the first thing that we're going to see is the fact that Paul engaged with their culture. Paul didn't hide from the culture, he engaged with the culture. And, and I want to, right off the bat, kind of challenge us on something. Paul is in Athens, and as he sees all this idolatry, he is bothered by it. He's really bothered by it. And there's something about um, what bothers us that says something about what's important to us, right? I mean, Paul sees that people worship false gods, and he's, just, he's not going, eh. You know, oh, well, that's what happens. This is what happens in this kind of culture nowadays. He sees this and he's provoked. That The word's pretty strong. It does mean like I'm annoyed, like something's just really nigging at me. It's bothered by it. He, he, he wants to see something happen with this. In fact, so much so that even though he's passing through, he can't pass by this reality. He has to go and reason. And it's interesting that the first thing he does is he goes to reason in a synagogue. So he goes to the place where the Jewish believers are going to be, where the Gentile converts to Judaism, or at least those that would be God-fearers are going to be. In other words, he goes to the place where the religious people who should have been provoked by idolatry were. He goes there and he steers them up first. He, he, he wants to seek like You get this uh, impression. I mean, it doesn't tell us what Paul said. It just says that he reasoned with them, and that's kind of like he's debating with them. But I can imagine Paul going into the synagogue, standing up and reading the second commandment about, Thou shalt know other gods before me, you know, first and second commandments. Don't make any graven images. And saying, this is, this is how God calls us to worship. Our Creator God calls us to worship Him. Does that not bother you live in a city that's completely given over to idols? He was provoked by this. But also what he does is he goes into the marketplace. And the idea is he's out there in the midst of people who are idol worshipers. And, and the, again, the way Luke writes this, it gives us this idea that he goes and whoever will, will converse with him, he'll converse. He'll have a conversation with anybody who will listen. And so he goes and he does this. 
Now, as he's in the marketplace, he's doing this. It says in verse 18 that certain Epicurean and Stoic uh, philosophers encountered him. And some said, "Who? Uh, what does this babbler want to say? Now, you might have heard the term Epicurean before, like when someone talks about an Epicurean delight. And the Epicureans, funny enough, followed a guy named Epicurus, who lived about 400 years before this time, or 300 years before this time. And Epicurus's philosophy was one that said, there is no afterlife. And so basically, our, the highest goal we can shoot for is as little as pain as, as much as possible and as much pleasure as possible. And that sounds like completely hedonistic, and, and, and often it could be expressed that way. But really, it was, to be fair to him, it was more of, we don't want to see other people in pain. We don't want to be in pain. We want to see other people suffering. We don't want to suffer. So let's do whatever we can do to make suffering as minimal as possible, because the truth is, all we have is this life, and we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. And so that was kind of the, 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 their view. They thought there was no afterlife, and so that's what you should think of. Now, on the direct opposite end of the spectrum were the Stoics. And the Stoics, basically, I can't remember the guy's name, who, who, they, who kind of brought forth their philosophy. Uh, Stoicism, or a Stoic, comes from a, this Greek word Stoic that means a porch. It was just the place this guy would preach from. Uh, but basically, this guy taught, in a sense, the opposite. His idea was about self-mastery. He did believe there was an afterlife. He did teach there was some sort of an afterlife. There were supernatural uh, forces uh, that did engage in, in, the, in the natural realm. And that basically, the highest sort of essence, the highest kind of power was this divine reason. And that divine reason was expressed in human reason. And so these were often the intellectuals of their day. And they were trying to figure out reason, what would be the highest kind of virtues. And so they, were, had, they would write volumes about family life and write volumes about government. And then so what would be just, what would be right. And the whole idea was, because there is an afterlife, let's try to be as virtuous as possible. Let's try to get as lined up with divine reason as possible. So really on the kind of polar opposite of the Epicureans. And what's interesting is here, Paul, when Paul begins to engage with this city, with people in the city about the gospel, about Jesus, that these two kind of polar opposites come together to think, what is this babbler saying? Now, when they call him a babbler, the, the word for babbler there, it's, the Greek word it could be translated seed picker. And it's this picture of like a little bird that kind of goes around and just kind of picks a seed off the ground, picks a seed off the ground. And it was a, it was a, it was basically a way to kind of uh, slag somebody off and say that this guy has no intellectual credibility. He's just kind of stealing ideas from other people. So he doesn't have any of his own ideas. And when they say that he's proclaiming some foreign god, they don't say, oh, he's one of those Jewish zealots or something. They say it's a foreign god. They're basically saying he doesn't even have any cultural credibility. He doesn't fit into the Jewish culture. He doesn't fit in the Greek culture. He's nobody. And this is important to recognize because there's a couple of things here that I think we need to get about, we need to understand about engaging in culture. First of all, Paul went where the people were. He didn't just invite them in. Paul didn't go to synagogue and say, you know, we gotta reach these guys for, you know, who are idol worshiping. So let's have, you know, let's have a big, you know, a, a, a sermon series on, we have something better than idols and we'll invite everyone we know and see if they all show up. Let's do that. He didn't do that. He actually went to the people. Challenge the guys in the synagogues probably about who Jesus was and about the fact that they could be guilty of idolatry as well if they didn't turn to him. But also, he went to the marketplace and, and engaged with anybody who would listen. He was willing to go where the people were. And he was reasonable with these people. When it says he reasoned with them, it's, it means what it says. He actually took the time to kind of say, well, what do you think? And this is, this is what, what Jesus talked about. This is who Jesus said he was. 
But even in doing this, people, even though they're curious, it's just kind of piquing some of their interest, the reality is he has very little uh, intellectual credibility or cultural credibility. And the truth is that when we engage in culture, the reality is we should expect to be kind of marginalized. People are going to push us to the side. It's just We're not going to go out in the street and talk to people. We're going to go, you know what? You Christians, you guys, you're the ones who got it right. You know, if, if more people were like you, everything would be wonderful. People don't talk that way anymore. Maybe they did 50 years ago, but not anymore. We're going to be pushed off to the side. We're going to be marginalized. People are going to think, you guys are nuts. You don't really think through these issues, obviously, because you still believe in this Jesus stuff. And, and culturally, you guys have all kinds of outdated ideas about things. Now, I'm saying this because not because we should glory in that being, being marginalized, but just that we should be aware talked to a young man this morning who basically admitted that one of the reasons he didn't want to put his faith in Christ was because he didn't have that many friends and he was afraid that if he started following Jesus, he'd have no friends. He thought, I don't want to be in that place. And I couldn't say, oh, don't worry, it'll be fine, you know? Because the truth was, well, there's a really good chance your friends could think you're nuts if you start following Jesus. We should expect to be marginalized even as we engage with the culture. But notice what Paul does. Paul does this <coughs> as, as he's engaging with these guys, they're curious. It says in verse 19, so they bring him to this place, Aeropagus, or, or what could be translated Mars Hill. They bring him to this place where they would go to debate these things, where they go and talk about philosophies and, and ideas. In fact, Luke makes us make sure that we understand that this is the thing that they love to do more than anything else. They love to hear some new thing. Let's talk about some new idea. They're always kind of philosophizing about something. And so Paul says, okay, they're, they're curious in this. I'm going to use this. This is important to them. They're important about hearing new things. Okay, fine. I'm going to say something new. Now, I wonder if when, when they were saying this to Paul, like, hey, come tell us this new thing, this strange doctrine, he could have said, oh, it's not actually new or strange because the God of the Old Testament, you know, he is the same God that is the God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a continuing song. He doesn't kind of just say, oh, no, no, your, your understanding is wrong. He goes, okay, yeah, new thing. I'll tell you this new thing. In other words, he sees this idea of a new thing is important to them. He uses that as a bridge to cross. And this is, again, it's important when it comes to engaging with the culture. The truth is, the best way we're going to be able to share Jesus with people is listening to what they say and observing what they do. One of the, one of the things that <clears throat> is really important for us to learn is when we're trying to talk to people about Jesus, is to learn just to simply ask questions. What do you think about Jesus? Or what do you think about the Christian faith? What do you think about God? What are your beliefs? How did you come to, to come to that conviction? What kind of formed that idea? Because you know what happens? If people are willing to talk about spiritual things, if God might be priming them and preparing them to hear the gospel, you know what's going to happen? They're going to talk long enough, and you're going to know, that's the bridge I need to cross. You're going to hear what bridge you need to cross with the gospel. But so often what happens is when we finally get the courage to say something, often that's the hardest thing, isn't it? Just getting the courage to say anything. But when we do get the courage to say something, we, we say a whole bunch of stuff that's probably even really good stuff to say, but maybe it means nothing to that person because we haven't heard where they're coming from. When we were out in the street doing street work a couple Saturdays ago, um, there was a gentleman that came up with his uh, little boy. And he was listening to the music and stuff. And someone said, hey, how's it going? And tried to give him a, a track. He's like, no, I'm not really interested in that, mate. Thanks anyway. And, and so I just said, so what are you, what are you up to this, this, this morning? And basically, make a long story short, eventually he said, 
Well, you know, he told me about, uh, um, he just wanted to hear the lad, hear the, have the, his son hear the music, and he said, you know, his, his mother had died uh, sometime before, and he was still really cut up about this. And so as he was sharing about, because he basically said, you know, I don't really have any more faith. I lost my faith when his mother died, is basically what he said. And so I said, man, I'm really sorry to hear that. What happened? And as he kind of just shared the story and talked about his son, basically you could see his heart soften. You could sense that he wasn't on the defensive. And, and, and we began to share about that. And, and we talked about, you know, just how, how difficult suffering is. And it's the thing that is hardest for all of us, whether we're Christian or not Christian, to understand. And, and so he ended up taking the gospel track. He ended up taking one of our invite cards as our phone number. And I said, listen, if you ever want to talk anymore, even just about the pain that you still obviously feel about your wife, it's free. Feel free to give me a ring. And, you know, we left on good terms, and he left with the gospel in his pocket. The thing is, I wonder if I would have just go, well, if he would have said, no, I don't believe in God. Well, why not? Do you know, you know, if you look at the cosmos, there's really good reasons why you should believe there's a God. If I would have just jumped into apologetics or here's the gospel, make sure you believe this. If I would have done that, I actually would have, he probably wouldn't have taken the track. He probably would have thought, these guys are nuts. And we wouldn't have built a bridge. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we don't need to share the gospel. Of course we do. But what Paul's doing here when he's engaging with the culture is he's recognizing what's important to them. Paul talks about in, in, in Colossians chapter 4, <clears throat> he says, Walk with wisdom with those that are on the outside. He says, Let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you, know, you may know how to answer each one. There's a, it's really popular in churches. I know right now it's, we're always kind of talking about how can we engage with this culture, and we're always thinking in a corporate sense. How can we change the way we do church, or how can we change the way we communicate? And in one sense, I, I, I empathize with that because that's very similar to what I think Paul's doing here. But the reality is it's not so much about here's what's cool in the culture, or here's what's acceptable in the culture, so let's bend to that because we can't. God calls us to follow him and his words. But there is something about having wisdom to know how to answer each one. Everyone needs to know Jesus. Everyone needs his forgiveness. Everyone needs to be right with God. And they can only be right with God through Jesus. But how we communicate that or the bridge we cross to bring the gospel to them is going to be different on a case-by-case basis. Are you guys following me on that? And this is really important because... If we are provoked that when we go into the city and we see people or when we go to work or when we go to school or we see our neighbors walking into their homes, if we are provoked, as we should be, that that person may or may not know Jesus, and statistically the, 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 the chances they probably don't know Jesus, then we need to think not just how can I just cram some information their way, but how can I engage with them for the gospel? We need to think that way. So Paul did this. They bring him to this place, Aeropagus, verse 22. It says, when Paul stood there in the midst, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the object of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, Paul says, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Now, this, is, this brings up the second thing that is really important if we're going to bring our God into this world. That is, not only do we need to engage with culture, but we need to make sure that we're clarifying who God is. 
Now, now, when it says that you are very religious, the old King James says, I, I see that you are too superstitious. And it can be translated that way. The same sort of Greek idea there, can, it, it's used in Greek literature for something bad, you're too superstitious, or something good, you're very religious. It can mean either way. It just means you fear the gods is what the, the Greek literally means. Now, I personally think in this context that Paul's using it in the positive because the way he speaks, he seems to be speaking in the positive, not so much speaking sarcastically. But that doesn't mean that what Paul's doing here is um, condoning their false worship. He's not condoning their idolatry. He was provoked by their idolatry. What Paul's doing here is he's, he's basically beginning with their understanding of God's. Or God. What do you know about the divine? What do you think of when you hear this? He's starting there, and he's going to go right into who the real God is. He's going to clarify who God is. And this is important. Uh, with with uh, Sarah's child mining business, we tend to we keep getting uh, families that are uh, either Hindu or Muslim who want us to watch their kids. And I don't think that's an accident. <laughs> I think God has a plan there. There's a reason for that. And it's been it's been good. It's been interesting, uh, because it really does, it exposes how many stereotypes. I like to think of myself as fairly educated and, and open-minded, um, but I still find myself with stereotypes going through my, my head, you know? So this, this Muslim lady that uh, Sarah was watching her, her child, um, you know, Sarah told me she's going to do this, and I'm, I'm kind of, I, I'm picturing this woman who's going to be defensive and a full bark on and all this kind of stuff. Seriously, this is what I'm thinking in my head. She comes, she's the sweetest, nicest lady you've ever met in your life. She's like, she's like just so happy. She's from Pakistan. She's just so happy that, that she's just come to the country and there's someone that she can trust, like Sarah, to watch her child. Wrote her just a beautiful little card saying thank you, brought some chocolate. She's just lovely. Just a great, great lady. Your kid is so smart, man. Just a crazy smart kid. And, and I'm thinking about this thinking, you know, it's amazing how it's so easy to kind of have those kind of ideas, you know. Now, does she worship a false god? Yeah, she does. But we need to have an understanding where she's coming from. Specifically, obviously, we can kind of guess by her dress, very modern dress, um, that she's a very, probably very much just um, liberally uh, Muslim. So that, that tells us about something. How are we going to reach her? How are we going to communicate with her? What's, what might be her ideas about God? So we're just praying into that. God, how do you want us to build this bridge? The point is, Paul started that way. Paul started with, okay, what's their idea about God? And then, then he says, okay, I want to present to you the God whom you don't know. Look what he says, verse 24. It gets really clear about who God is. Now, basically, what I've done in verses 24 through verse 29 I see three basic things that Paul's saying about God. We could probably take like an hour or two hours unpacking what these things might imply theologically. We're not going to do that, obviously. I'm only, I'm only allowed 30 minutes on Sunday. So, um, but there's three basic things that he seems to be talking about God. The first thing is this. He reveals God. He clarifies that God is the God who lacks nothing. Look what he says in verse 24. He says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with man's hands, notice, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. <coughs> now the Bible says in, verse, in Psalm 24, verse 1, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The, the world is his and those who dwell in. In other words, what the Bible teaches is that because God made all, all belongs to him. 
That's what the Bible teaches. That's the pers- biblical perspective of the God of the Bible, is he's made everything, and he is over everything. Everything belongs to him. That's important for us to understand and actually live by as, as believers. If we're going to be Jesus followers, we live that way. We don't act like we're doing God a favor when we obey. <laughs> or that when we, we say, okay, God, I want to just give this thing over to you. Or I want to, okay, I'm willing to surrender this time to you. It's God's time anyway. So we're only kind of, in a sense, giving back to him what already belongs to him. But, the, but more importantly, he's wanting these people to understand, listen, you have a mindset, and this was often a Greek mindset, a Roman mindset was, there are all these gods, and, and these gods, even though we're more dependent upon them, they're still dependent upon us. So they would leave like offerings of food or offerings of wine. And there was even uh, some thought uh, in, in Roman thought that basically if you stopped praying to the gods, they would eventually die. So they were dependent upon you in the same way that you are dependent upon them. And Paul's going, you know, that's not actually the, the, the God of the real, true, living God. That's not the creator God. He needs nothing. He needs absolutely nothing from anybody. In fact, the Bible says in the book of James that every good thing, every good and perfect gift comes from God. And the idea is that everything good in our life, according from a biblical perspective, is not what God's giving to us to get something back because he, he needs nothing from us. He just gives that to us. We call it common grace. He gives that to all mankind simply because he's good. That's how he is. Now, this is important too because even though Paul doesn't get into the Trinity here, obviously, this does does remind us something about the nature of God that I think is important for us to understand as believers. Okay, You've probably heard people say before, I've heard people say before, I've even heard people preach before, that you know God wants relationship. The reason God made you is because he wants relationship. And so they'll say things like that. You know, there's God, he creates the world, but God's love, love has to have an object. So God made us so love could have an object. But that's actually not completely true. No, we are objects of God's love. God does love us. The Bible declares that. But the Bible declares more clearly that God is love. That God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the three are one And they've always enjoyed perfect love forever. That's why we can say God is love. Because the love of the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father by the power of the Spirit has always existed. So when God creates the world, he doesn't create the world because he's lacking something. He creates the world because he wants to give of himself. He wants to share of himself. Therefore, he creates. He wants that that which he created to know him uh, more so, to be you might say, invited into the love that he already is experiencing in himself, and therefore he redeems. Do you understand? That's the God we're talking about. God needs nothing from us. We bring nothing to the table. He does not benefit at all. I even heard a, a good pastor friend of mine say a couple years ago at a conference, we were talking about theological things as we do, and he said, uh, he goes, obviously God gets something out of this. And I'm like, absolutely not. God gains nothing by making us. He doesn't need us to glorify him. We gain all. God just gives and gives and gives. The problem is, even though God gives, we're just not very thankful. No, God doesn't lack anything. This is the God that Paul's talking about. But also, listen, not just the God who lacks nothing, but also the God who can be known. Remember, they're talking about the unknown God. The the Romans had this mindset. The Greeks had this mindset of there's something about the gods that we just couldn't know. But they can be known. Look what Paul says. Paul says, And he has made... (coughs) 
from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and their boundaries of their dwelling so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might find uh, grow for him and find him, though he's not far from each of us. So he says, listen, God has preordained where people grow up. God has preordained, sovereignly decided, this is where this, these people need to be. And, and there's opportunity within every culture, you might say, for someone to grow for God and eventually find him. That's what Paul's basically saying. He's saying, listen, um, for uh, he says in verse 28, <coughs> for in him we live and move and have our being. And notice what he's doing. He's quoting their own, pro- their own poets. He says in verse 29 or 28, he says, For we are also his offspring. So now Paul is quoting their own poets who, who would even kind of again through this common grace recognize <coughs> that um, <coughs> we can know something about God. That obviously the, it's God who's given us life, not us who's given him life. And we, we live because he wants us to live. Uh, we exist and, and, and do the things that we do because he allows it to happen. And we are even his offspring, he says. Now, what's interesting about this is, one, going back to engaging with culture, Paul uses what they would know from their culture, from their own art. He uses their ideas from their art to bring a truth. Oh, this is not the same as Paul saying, oh, see, you already know the truth and it's in your pop songs. That's not the same thing. What he's t- trying to say is, you know, when your poet says this thing and everyone knows that thing, well, there's some truth to that thing. And here's the truth that clarifies that thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is what Paul's wanting to make sure that these guys understand. In fact, when he talks about God's not far from us, he's basically saying there's really nothing that keeps us from knowing God except one thing. You know what that is? Our sin. This is why God says even to his own people in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 59, he says, look, God's hand's not too short that he can't save. His ear's not deaf that he can't hear. But your sins have separated you from your God. And, and it's your sins that have kept him so he will not hear you. God, it's not, God is not saying, I don't want these people. Paul's trying to say to these guys, listen, God desires a relationship with you, but there's an issue that has to be dealt with. Now, notice what he says in verse 29. Okay? He says, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we should not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something that's uh, shaped by art or man's devising. In other words, he says, look, if we are, since we are God's offspring, if if we as human beings, and this is where the Stokes would have thought, yeah, okay, our human reason reflects divine reason. Okay, If we as human beings uh, are alive, we're living, we're intelligent, we can think, how much more would God be? God's not going to be some sort of statue that we can make. God's not going to be um, you know, some, sort of be- some sort of a thing that has no life to it, no breath to it. God obviously is, is going to be a, uh, someone who can think. Uh, he's going to have a personhood. He's going to be able to have, he's going to be intelligent. Why would we think if we're that way, that the one that created us would be less than we are? Someone we'd have to form. It would make no sense. In other words, if God's like, if we're like this, how much more is God like this? And even there's implied in this, this idea of, of self-disclosure. 
So they recognize that there's an unknown entity. There's, there's something unknown about who God is. And, and it's like Paul saying, listen, if we have to disclose ourselves, certainly God has to disclose himself. If we have to tell people something about us, because they can only observe, observe so much about us, how much more God whom we can't see has to say, this is what I'm like. So he's the God who must reveal himself. That's why you call him the unknown God. Now, I'm bringing this up because it's important that we recognize that engaging with culture isn't just isn't about trying to be cool or hip or act like you, you understand everything that's happening in the modern world or every modern issue that's out there. It's about listening to people where they're at, recognizing where they're at, and showing them that the answer is God himself. Clarifying who God is to these people. This is who God is. Now let me just say this as well. What keeps us from doing this is really not lack of information. It's not that we, we, we just don't understand enough about God. It's not that simple. Because the truth is, I've read gobs of theology books. I've read books about the attributes of God. And I know a fair amount, not loads, but I know a fair amount about what the orthodox view is of the God of the Bible. But that's not what keeps me from sharing it. What keeps me from sharing God as he is, clarifying who he is, is my fear of man and my lack of intimacy with him. It's the fact that I'm afraid of what people think, and I don't take the time to to, uh, fellowship with this God who's revealed himself to me. That's the problem. See, Paul had this boldness, not just because he was really bright and he was a, a great theologian, you know, and he had studied well. Paul had this boldness because he knew the God that knocked him off his horse. He knew the God that got his attention. He knew the God that saved him, and he worshipped that God. And that's why he was provoked when he saw people worshipping lesser gods, idols that weren't really gods, that were just images of man's imagination. It bothered him because he knew who God was, and he wanted people to know the truth. Have you uh, ever had somebody defame a friend of yours to, to your face? Like someone says, oh, that guy, you know, Joe, he's such an idiot. Joe does this and Joe does that. And, and, and you're listening to this and you're going, man, dude, you don't know Joe. Joe's not like that at all. And it just kind of provokes you because you know Joe and you know Joe wouldn't be like this. Have you ever had that experience? How much more when it comes to our Creator and our Redeemer? So this is why we don't get provoked. We don't get provoked because even though we know God up here, yeah, we, we know, we believe the Trinity, and we understand that God's good, and we understand that God's all-powerful, and we understand that God's merciful, and we understand that God's a God of grace. When people begin to slander our God, we say, oh, this is embarrassing. I'm not really sure what to say now. Because we're not really walking with our God. That's often what happens. That's why we're not provoked. That's why we are unsure about how do we clarify it. Now, it's true. We do need to learn. We do need to have uh, the ability to share truth. There's no doubt about that. And we're all going to have varying abilities to be able to do that. But really, the motivation here that Paul has is the fact that they didn't know who God was, and he wanted to clarify to them who God actually is. So that's the second thing. First thing, engage with the culture. Second thing, clarify who God is. Here's the third thing, really quick. He called individuals to respond. He called individuals to respond. He actually said to, to these guys, there's something you need to do now with this information. 
Look what it says, verse 30. Truly, he says, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. What, what, what times of ignorance? The times of ignorance in mankind's history, including now when they have wrong ideas about God and think he can be fashioned into little statues that we bow down to or whatever. And don't think we don't do the same thing. Let's be honest. We do the same thing. We just kind of, our idols tend to be square and, and very expensive. We stick them in the corner of our room and bow down to them for hours every week. Or our idols tend to be ideas about God that are difficult for us to swallow. So we think, oh, that can't be the God that I want to worship. So we make a God of our own imagination. As one of my ex-youth kids said to me, one of the girls in my youth group said to me once, I just don't think my God would ever send anybody to hell. I said, well, you're right. Your God wouldn't because he doesn't exist. But the God of the Bible has, has said there's a, a judgment day. And he doesn't want people to go there. That's why he's warned about a judgment day. But he will, he will judge. The God of the Bible says he will do that. Or people who say, you know, I couldn't believe in a God who could let off a murderer, a guy who kills children, and then he you know, goes on death row or something, and then he finds Jesus, and he's going to be forgiven. There's no way any God I would serve would do that. Well, you're right, because you don't serve the true and living God, because you don't understand how merciful God is and the price God paid so he could show that guy mercy. No, we we need to be willing to understand who God is and share that. Paul calls these guys repentance. Notice what he does. He says, look, God overlooks these things, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Remember, repentance isn't isn't a dirty word. It's not a a harsh thing to, to say. It can be said in a harsh way, but it just simply means to turn. It means, look, you are walking this way, turning your back on God, living for yourself and your sin. God says, turn to me. Turn to me. That's what repent means. Turn to me. Turn away from your sin. Choose me over your sin and turn to me. God commands that we do that. That's what it means to repent. We shouldn't be afraid of that. It should be common sense. We we do it all the time, actually. Think about it. Guy and girl in a relationship. They've been dating for a long time. They really are attracted to each other. But the guy, you know, he's got wandering eyes. And he sometimes hangs out with other girls. And the girl says, listen, man. If we're going to do anything serious, you've got to make a decision here. You've got to turn from them and be loyal to me. And no one goes, oh, she's so horrible. Everyone goes, no, that's loyalty. It's what you'd expect, right? God expects monogamy. He expects us to be loyal to him. All right, you're our God. There's no other. We're turning away from false gods. We're turning away from false ideas. We're turning away from living for our sin and turning to you. Isn't that just common sense? Isn't that what loving relationships do? And so he calls him to this, <coughs> and it says in verse 31, because this is why, because he has, God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And here's how we know this, Paul says, because he has given us assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Think about this. We have assurance that we're going to raise from the dead, that, that, that death is not the end for us. Why? Because Jesus is risen. But the Bible teaches, Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, you can look it up later and read it. In John chapter 5, Jesus is really clear. He says, one day there's going to be a time when everyone who's in the grave is going to hear my voice and they're going to come back, so they're going to be resurrected. Those, those that are, are uh, good to be resurrected to, to the resurrection of life, those who are evil to the resurrection of condemnation. In other words, those that believe in me, life. Those who don't believe in me, death. 
But he's going to resurrect them all. He has power over death. Now that's a great hope for us, but it's also great sobriety for us. It's not like, oh, we just hope to get to heaven and everyone else, who knows what's going to happen to them. No, everyone's going to be resurrected. And because Jesus is resurrected, we know that's a fact. This is what Paul's saying to these guys. He's saying this is a reality. Christ is alive. And because he's alive, we can know, and this is good news, he's going to judge in righteousness. No more crooked politicians. No more crooked cops. No more people lying and getting away with things. He's going to judge in righteousness. No one's going to get away with anything, which is why we want to turn to him now and receive the mercy and forgiveness that he's provided. So when he says the resurrection, what do they say? It says in verse 32, some heard of the resurrection of dead and they mocked. You can imagine the Epicureans going, dude, there's nothing that happens after we die. It's just ridiculous. This is what's going to happen. In fact, What's going to happen more times than not when you have conversations with people about Jesus and you think you're at the place that you can say, hey, why don't you respond to the Lord now? They're going to say, uh, no. I, I probably shared this with you guys before, but you know, I've been in ministry since 1991. I've been in full-time ministry. And I've had hundreds of conversations with people about Jesus. Maybe thousands. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And been in that place where it seemed like this person's just ready, right now, ready to receive Christ and be saved. And I've never been able to, what do they say, close the deal. Not once. Never. Like one-to-one is what I'm talking about. Never one-to-one. I mean, there was this uh, one time where I was talking with this, this guy, this young guy at youth group, and we had this long conversation, and, and I'm asking him these questions, and he's answering, and you can just see, he seems like really moved, and he's like, man, this is really true. And I'm all... So do you want to receive Christ now? And he's all, ah, no thanks. What's the deal? Now, I've been blessed to see lots of people get saved in youth group and in, in churches, the church that I pastor, but I've never one-to-one closed the deal. Now, the reason I say that is because it's difficult. When we're calling people to respond, a lot of times they're going to just say, no, no thanks, don't want it. They might even mock you for it. No, you're, you're in that job. Go away. That's what's going to happen. But then look what happens. It says, and others will also say, <coughs> We will hear you again on this matter, which basically means it's interesting stuff, but I'm not willing to make a decision. That happens a lot. Most of the time when people are willing to have a conversation with you, this tends to be the response. If they're going to mock you, it's going to happen within the first 15 seconds, and they're going to usually walk away. But when you, uh, you have a conversation, maybe someone respects you as a person or as a coworker, they might go, you know, we'll talk about this later. And, and a lot of times that's not because they're interested. It's more like, I don't want to have to think of this anymore. That's how they respond. And you might be going, okay, John, this isn't really encouraging me to kind of bring Jesus out in the world. But no, I'm trying to prepare you. Here's the reality. A lot of people, in fact, the majority of people are not going to believe us. Jesus said, wide is the road that leads to destruction. And many people go on it. And narrow is the road that leads to life. And few people go on it. Which means when we're sharing with the people on the wide road saying, hey, there's a, a narrow road that God calls us to. Can we talk to you about who he is and why he calls us to that road? They're going to go, uh, no thanks. Or they're going to mock us. Or they're going to walk away. Most people are going to do that. So you might be thinking, what's the point? The point is, look what it says in verse 34. However, some men joined him and believed. Some will believe. I want to to kind of close with a real simple question. If the rest of your working days, you try to walk with Jesus, and you try to demonstrate Jesus, and you try to share Jesus with people, 
And no one ever becomes a Christian under your watch until the very last day you're at work. Would it be worth it? Well, we all say, of course, absolutely. Because we think about, yeah, that, there's that one soul that is now going to be with the Lord forever. But you know, here's the reality. <coughs> you know, God records for us a prophet who, whom uh, God did use in the sense of he did have some pretty radical things to say, things that are often quoted today. But we don't have any record of him, uh, of people turning in repentance towards God through his ministry. His name is Jeremiah. He cried a lot. <laughs> he got thrown in prison. He suffered a lot. But we don't have any record of, of his ministry, um, in his generation at least, seeing people come to repentance. Just really a whole bunch of people, all, all of Israel going into captivity. So we think, well, why is it, is it worth it? Well, it is worth it. Because I'll tell you what happened. That generation that went into captivity, it's to that generation that God gave the promise through Jeremiah, I know my future, or I know your future, says the Lord. Uh, or I know my thoughts towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of a future and a hope. Thoughts of good and not of evil. He says to them, you're going to go into captivity for seven years, but I'm going to bring you out of this. So when they came out of captivity and Jeremiah had long been dead, they could go, God spoke through this guy. And this is why we have hope that we can be restored. See, here's the reality. It's not about us feeling good, like, oh, all my efforts were worth it. <clears throat> but it is about us knowing that God wants to make himself known in this world through us. Paul goes to Athens. As far as we know, there was never a church uh, established there in Athens in Paul's day. You have this couple of believers. They're named. They're probably named because people go, oh, yeah, we know who those guys are. They're the only two believers in all of Athens. <laughs> but he was willing to engage with culture. He was willing to clarify who God is. And he was willing to call people to respond. Why? Because he wanted his God to be in this world. Amen?